0: to Champagne Sharks. I am Vita Star and co-hosting along with me you have T. Hey what's up? And you have Kenny.
1: Hey guys how you doing?
0: And our special guest today James Jones. What's up James?
2: Hey how y'all doing?
0: I'm great. I'm excited.
2: I'm not bad. I'm, exci- I'm excited too. Uh, we were talking a little bit before uh, the recording started. I just want to ask real quick actually but this is Vita's show. I'm gonna let, I'm gonna let Vita. Uh, just
0: go ahead. I, I want you to it's a good question so go ahead and kick okay. it off.
2: Okay, so um, our guest today, before we get into his full bio, there was one part of his bio that I just had to ask about, because, because um, you know, we're talking to a black man, you never know, like, it could be 30 or, or 70, you know, <laughs> you, you know, so I saw this thing that said that you were the uh, former assistant manager uh, for the village people, and I I don't know if you were, like, assistant manager at their peak and you were one of those black guys that, you know, is, like, 60-something and looks 30, you know, or if you were managing them, like, later in their uh, career. But I just have to know the story behind that.
3: Okay, so not their former assistant manager, their former manager's assistant. Um, So... (laughs) Wait
0: a minute. Is that like assistant to the manager as opposed to assistant manager? That's what that
3: sounds like. Yeah. So um, I was the assistant to their manager. Um, and this was 2010, 2011. Okay. Um, so they still tour the world, mainly in Europe and Asia, where I guess American music is a couple of years or decades behind there. Um, so it just so happens, I went to New York um, to this thing called the American Theater Wing where they have this open job call. And I just jumped a plane, went in there with my resume and there's this this hotel so um Galleria, where they have all of these music companies, TV companies, theater companies who are just hiring on the spot. So I just kind of went from table to table, talking to people, sharing my resume. And there was this guy, he was alone at his table. Um, and he had he had people who were coming to him, but he was turning everyone away. So I said, I'm not going to that table. He's not interviewing anybody. So I just happened to walk by and he was like, hey, hey, you, you know, where, where are you going? What's your story? What are you doing here? So I began talking to him and I found out that he was the manager for the Village People. And we sat down, I and mean, we had an interview and he offered me a job as his assistant. And so a couple of weeks later, I moved to New York. And so I was the manager's assistant to the musical group Village People. So that's that's how that became how that story came about.
0: That's a wild story. No,
3: that's, that's <laughs> <dope. laughs>
2: yeah, though Makes a lot more sense when you say it happened in 2010. They were still touring. Yeah, because I just had to figure that out. I thought like you were there like in the in the 80s. Like a like a good okay. prodigy. house or prodigy, man. Like He's a young Al Heyman. <laughs>
1: He's hanging around the old group. Yeah. Well,
0: cool. as fun as that is, the reason why I really wanted to have you on and talk to you is because I really love your profession, um, and I also love your your gymna- your gym your gymnastics organization. I follow it on I follow it on Instagram. And I see the you know little black boys doing tumbles and stretches and all these cool things. So are you still currently practicing law and running your, your gym?
3: Yep. It's an 80 hour a week job. Both of them combined together running concurrently.
0: And I think that the, I guess the amazing part is that of that to me is that as a black male coach, you're also, you know, taking the time out despite your busy schedule to be there for young black boys. And that to me is phenomenal because so many, so many times we think we don't have time to give back. And maybe we don't. And Maybe it's difficult to spread ourselves very thin. But the fact that you were able to do that speaks a lot and speaks volumes about who you are and your character and your determination to help your community. Do you think that um, that's always been in
3: you? Um, I think that this is just a product of people who have helped me out throughout my life. And so when I was younger, there were things that I needed or things that my family needed. And there was always someone to lend a hand, someone to say, I have this and I'll share it with your family. Someone to say, we'll pick you up for this or we'll take you there. My mom was a nurse um, and she worked um, either. She was either at the hospital. She was either at the doctor's office or she was either at the nursing home where she worked. Sometimes she worked in multiple locations. And so she just couldn't take us places. And my mom was was. Well, she was religious. The term, the correct term would be religious. And I would say a religious fanatic. And there were many things that she just didn't want to go to or she didn't believe that we should go to. And so she didn't she didn't put her time and energy in learning about those things. And so there was always someone who was outside of the family who was willing to take us to these places, uh, particularly me and my um, my younger sister simply because my mom just wasn't available or because of her religious beliefs, she just didn't make herself available. And so growing up, I understood that there were other people who had children maybe their family couldn't afford things, or maybe their family just didn't know enough about things to want to get their children involved in them, mainly gymnastics being one of them. And I just always thought that I could be someone who could pour into someone else's life like someone else poured into mine. Um, like, for instance, but for gymnastics, it was my assistant principal who actually put me in gymnastics and, and paid for the classes. And so for someone who doesn't know me, who doesn't know my family, who just sees me flipping on the playground at school and... To say, hey, I'm going to put you in gymnastics and not expect anything in return. Um, I feel that I've just been given so much and just to have an opportunity to give back is great. And I, I just took that opportunity.
0: But it's also showcasing in your profession in itself. It's like you it's not just that you want to help people um, in the in this or help your community in this way by having a gym. You also help people as an attorney. You help families, many families that I'm sure are struggling. And, you know, it's very difficult when you have, a, a, let's say, a, a child services case or, you know, there's threats of, of your child being taken away from you. There is a lot of. Of bar- There are a lot of barriers to making sure you can keep your family intact despite whatever may have happened before. And there aren't always resources to support parents, but this is something that you do. How did you, what, how did you get into you know, working with families and, as an attorney?
3: Well, I was a teacher um, for about three years. After law school, um, I started a full-time acting career. Then during the down seasons of filming, I would substitute teach. And so at one of the schools that I worked at one of the teachers actually slipped the disk so they needed someone to to permanently take over that teacher's classroom and so I stopped taking acting jobs and I took that full-time position and so that led me to take another full-time position and I transferred here I believe it was the fall of 2014 and I had done maybe about 6 months of acting and then Georgia had a huge shortage of teachers. So they were basically hiring anyone. Like if you had a bachelor's degree and there's a position at any school that you want, just apply. Um, and so I worked at a school for about eight months and I said, okay, if I'm going to work eight hours a day, I should be working as a lawyer. You know, I didn't go to school to be a teacher. If I'm not going to act and I'm going to work, I need to work in my profession. So um, one of my former law school classmates, was also a teacher. um, And she went to the juvenile court and they offered her a job. And she was telling me, oh, my God, you have to come to juvenile court. It's similar to what you do as an auxiliary teacher at school. The only thing is, is you're doing it in front of a judge. So being an auxiliary teacher, you're the ISS teacher, you're giving reports, you're helping the principal do learning compliance. When the kids fight, you're the person going to break up the fights." It's it's pretty much a catch all position. So you're
0: you're working with kids who are clearly struggling in multiple ways. So I want to talk to you more about that because I want to get us to a broader conversation about that and um, really base it off of your experience. But, yeah, I'm sorry, continue. But I just wanted to point that out, like, you know, that this is where you're kind of beginning.
3: Yeah. So um, a Title One school very low income, very limited resources, kids with behavior problems, many of them with IEPs that aren't being serviced because the school is underfunded and understaffed. And that's why they had the auxiliary teachers, because as an auxiliary teacher, the principal could use you as a catch-all to do anything in the school because you weren't necessarily tied down by a classroom. And so whatever that principal needed that day, the auxiliary teacher would become that. So you're still getting your regular salary as a teacher. You just don't have a full classroom where you have to stay. six or seven hours a day. And it be, it, began, it became a lot um, from seven to three dealing with just everything that comes to you. So I, I went to the juvenile court, like my friend said, and I spoke with the judge who was over the attorneys there without even asking me. He just added my name to a list of attorneys that he was appointing cases to. And so that's how I got involved with the juvenile court and I believe maybe maybe three or four months later, I, I had a full load of cases. So after that, I couldn't be a full time attorney and teach school. Um, so I started taking cases full time from my county's juvenile court. So that's how I got into doing um, work with children who are in foster care, um, families who have cases with defects and in what we call private dependency cases where family members may sue each other for custody if they feel that another family member is unfit to parent.
2: Let
0: me ask you this, because I'm, I'm, I'm really curious about your perspective. And I know I have my opinion. If anybody follows me on Twitter, they know what I probably think. But um, when you hear things like like Kamala Harris's policy around truancy and, you know, this threat of incarceration and her bragging about it. Because it's not just the fact people say, well, she, not anyone got arrested, although people did. At the end of the day, she was bragging about a policy where parents can be threatened with incarceration if they're not getting their children to school. And having been, you being someone who has worked with both families and children and parents alike um, and all and all together and in the education space and in the legal space, how do you feel when you hear those kind of policies come out kind of legislation? Do you think they're
3: dangerous? Do you think they're helpful? Well, I think they're very dangerous, especially in a time like this. One of the biggest concerns that we're having in Georgia is that um, DFACS is going to file these mass removal claims against parents because there are hundreds of kids who've never logged into online learning since um, online learning started in September. Also, um, because our kindergarten is not compulsory, it's optional, there are thousands of kindergartners or kids who should be in kindergarten who haven't enrolled in school at all. You have to ask yourself, do these kids have computers? Do they have internet? Do they even have access to do virtual learning? So you have a policy or someone like um, Harris who's saying that they can arrest parents for this, but parents may not even have the resources to have their children attend these online learning pods. Then you have schools who are allowing some parents to do what's called correspondence learning, where the parents can come and pick up packets and then the kids can complete the packets and turn them back in, not taking into consideration if that parent has transportation, if that parent has to work themselves. Or even if that parent does have transportation or have to work, this is material that parents can't teach a child. So basically what you have is your parent is now your child is now the child's teacher and they have material that they don't see themselves, if they don't have access to the internet as a parent, they can't help this child. I mean, they can try to help them or they can encourage them to complete the assignment. But what we have is um, we have an entire country who's now relying on parents who may not be educated or who may not be educated in a specific field of education who are now full-time teachers, and they are holding those parents to that same standard And they probably shouldn't do that. And it's likely going to affect lower income families, African-American families and immigrants, because um, people who can afford private tutors or people who have Internet or people who have four or five children and each child has a laptop. They aren't facing these same difficulties. Now, if you would have asked me this maybe six or seven months ago before the pandemic, my answer would have probably been different. But because we're in this space now and because these are the things that are facing children and families, I think that any language like that is very dangerous because even though it's not discriminatory on its face, the way it will be applied will be discriminatory and it will be mostly black people who be who are affected by this.
0: Yeah. And that's what pisses me off the most when we have these conversations around um, the Democratic Party in general or just liberalism. It's like we're supposed to ignore all of that and just support whatever it is they're talking about, even though we're having detrimental policies come from literally that party. And I really I would you know, I would just, I don't know. I guess for me, I, I get really angry about it because we can't even speak up about it because it's like we have to be compliant in our own destruction. We have to be compliant in the things that we're affected by. And we know it's going to be black people and black boys in particular who get hurt the most in these in in these situations. I mean, the other sharks can jump in at any time.
1: Uh, Yeah. So um, (laughs) I was I was waiting for you to get done because I was about to say I work. I actually work for the school district here in Portland, Oregon, and Portland is white. okay. but the school that I work at is uh, 90 percent white. The issue we're having with kids logging into long distance learning same thing you're talking about down in Georgia. It's the black kids that's having issues. Of all the kids, it's the black kids. So they asked me the other day if I wanted to do, uh, create a BSU, Black Student Union. I said, yeah, show me where the black kids are. They still haven't shown me. And we've been in school for a month and a what? half. <laughs>
2: wait, wait. Why are the black kids uh, having having problems?
1: Is, like, like, is it for the same reasons for both of y'all? or is same, it different? Same reasons. Same reasons. Either they don't have laptops, even though the school district um, gave out laptops. But they didn't hand out internet. You know what I'm saying? And so now so, you're
3: encouraging a child to go to Chick fil A or go to a gas station or go to some other place. shop. Yeah. Somewhere. To sit. At, how are they going to get there? If their parents are working, who's going to exactly. supervise them? You know, here if you have a child under 12 who's out unsupervised. Someone can call the police and that's child abandonment. That's child neglect. That's child abuse. So you have all of these opportunities for families who don't have a full time babysitter or child care or parents who don't work in the home to be penalized simply because they just don't have these resources. And there's a lot and there's a lot of families.
1: And I'm sure you guys know families like this. Well, hell, I was I was part of a family like this where I had to walk home, walk to school by myself, walk home from school when I was in third grade. So if these kids is at home by themselves because their parents are working and they're in second or third grade, we know. Well, I ain't gonna say we know, but in their family they have a system of way they do things. So the kid knows how to cook something. The kid knows how to not open the door. But when he gets on the computer, he's not doing the things he's supposed to do. And then the teacher is looking for his parents. Now all of a sudden they're calling uh, Department of Human Services or. Uh, Child protective services because they the that he's at home or 911. Yeah. But, or because he's at home, he or she is at home by themselves. So it's like now we're right back in this situation with truancy and people being penalized for it because they don't have the resources to be at home. I'm lucky I can be at, well, my daughter's 16 years old. So, it, you know, but my niece lives in Arizona. She's in uh, fourth grade. And luckily for her, my, my sister can be at home. And luckily for her, my mom lives down there too. But if my mom didn't live in Arizona, my niece would be at home by herself doing homework or figuring out what she got to do. Because my sister works for the airline company. She's got to be in the building. She's got to be at work. So if you don't have all these resources, what are you supposed to do? So instead of them providing resources, they provide a jail cell. Now, you show me where the logic is.
0: Exactly, Kenny. And that's one of the issues I had with Kamala Harris's truancy policy in general was just the fact that why would that be the approach at all? Why would, why would criminal, why would criminalizing parents and and the threat of incarceration, which is one of the most tragic, most traumatic things you can do to a family and to the child? How much, how much, let me ask you this. How much progress will that child have in school? Well, first of all, let's just remember this. Having been traumatized in that way.
1: This isn't on accident. We're talking oh, about definitely. very, 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 very intelligent people that have a whole lot of degrees and they've done a whole lot of research. They have all the statistics. So when prison and jail becomes the result or the option, they doing that shit on purpose. Right. That's not on accident. So and that,
0: that's to, so, so on point. I'm sorry. So, so, go to, ahead, so
1: to piggyback on the, what you're saying about people uh, basically telling black people they need to just go and vote for these people just because even though that's another that's another talk show for that's another talking (laughs) point you gotta actually think about that how in the hell are you supposed to be able to sit with yourself i can't go to sleep at night if i say to myself well i'm gonna just do it because everybody else is doing it i'm not i can't go to sleep at night because i actually read this stuff i actually vote local i read this stuff i know what's going on so how in the hell is my black behind gonna sit here and say yeah i know they're putting black people in jail but i gotta vote for them what (laughs) It doesn't even make sense. And how and how can you as a grown up make those type of decisions? You're not even making a grown up decision.
0: Right. And, you know, you know, just in general, though. And I know, James, you have probably witnessed this multiple times, just the idea that we're going to use the law and use the criminal justice system to address an issue that is more probably more better um, dealt with in a social way or, you know, through an organization or some type of social service. I'm sure you've witnessed that multiple times.
3: In your work. I actually don't believe that custody of children should be decided in a courtroom. It makes no sense at all. Um, Mm -hmm. The judge doesn't know the parents. Most of the times the judge don't even know the issues. They have someone who hands them a file and they skim the file or they'll read the case summary to see what's going on. They don't have any intimate connection to these people. What I've discovered over the years is that in most county statutes, there are alternative ways to settle um, child custody issues, especially if the parents have been deemed to be unfit. The only thing is, is that the people who are involved, Um, they won't get paid as much if they use those other alternatives. So there are some people who are really invested in making sure that um, a dependency case, which would be a a child, abuse, a child neglect, or a child abandonment case goes through all of the court steps so that they can get paid. Counties also get paid by how many cases cycle through their courtroom. So if a judge is sending every case to mediation or de- or dismissing every case or suggesting that children um, go home to family members or family friends on permanent guardianship, that may decrease the caseload in a particular county, and that county would then decrease funding for that courtroom. So when you look at it, Everybody's salary is tied to something. In this world, something eats something. And in the criminal justice system, everyone is eating us. And I hate to say it like that, but everyone is just so socially and financially invested in there being a criminal justice system that right now there's no way around it. And so when you look at it, um, like you have your school to prison pipeline, I fully believe that the foster care system caters to, um, to middle class white people who are childless. Because those are those are a very large number of people who are fostering and adopting black children. And I'm not saying that they're involved in this some way, but this has just become a way for people who are in that demographic to have just clear access to children. And it could be they could be empty nesters. Their children may have passed away or they could be barren and unable to bear children. But somehow I don't know when this or they could be abusers preying on black children. And yes, that's that's always the case. And when you hear it in the news, like these people took in these children, these children went missing, these these children died. So who knows why people want to be foster parents? But I believe that. sometime I don't I don't know when but maybe 15 20 years ago uh, and Caribbeans Caribbeans and up uh, and middle class white people learned that they can make a living being foster parents and they they all migrated to that like say Asians may may own restaurants. Asians may do hair, nail salons. Caribbeans and middle class white people do foster care. And that is like their job. Mm-hmm. And they cycle these children through their homes and they get paid the three or four thousand dollars a month to take care of them. And that same money could be used to assist the family that they've taken the children from. But people are, for some reason, people are invested and they're being this system of foster care because someone's eating off of it.
0: And that's the that's the thing. There's a whole economy centered on it, and and I want to take. There's so many points that I want to hit based off of just that that point alone, but I I can't get them all. But I have to take it back to. Even if we look at the crime bill, then the crack epidemic and that huge jump in increase of foster care and kinship care and kinship care is when you have a, a, another relative like a grandmother or aunt, uncle that takes care of the children. if Something happens to the parent um, instead, of, instead of putting them in foster care. But what ended up happening was that you had all these kinship care parents or kinship, yeah, these kinship care parents um, taking in children that they couldn't afford to take care of. Yeah, so you I mean, have yeah, grandmothers I, that are like low that. income, barely, you know, making it on their social security. And then they like now I have I either have to take all four of ki- these kids or they get split up and put in different homes and we don't know where they are. Right. And so I have to now I have to bear this extra burden. And we don't even consider like the, So when I talk about the crime bill, people only think it only affected like these bad drug dealers. Right. We don't even consider the all the ramifications of the crack epidemic and the crime bill and all the things that affected our families in that process.
1: Uh, something I was going to I was going to uh, touch on something uh, about people adopting black kids. I, I live here in Portland. And that um, when you go to when you go to a lot of these schools, like my daughter went to an art school in middle school. You see a lot of that. I mean, it's to the point to where when I would see a black kid, I would have to wait to see what the parents looked like because I wasn't sure who the parents were. And lo and behold, there's always some white people. And I had an incident one time where um, I would part of the part of Portland that I, I used to live in used to be predominantly black. North Portland, the Columbia Villa. And, you know, Portland has been destroyed by gentrification. Like, you can forget looking for a black community here. It's over. And there was a a white family that had a black kid. Now, I'm thinking that this kid had to be about eight years old, about seven or eight years old. And uh, he lived right next door to my then current girlfriend. So I would come outside. I'd be on my way to work or whatever. He'd be on his way to school. And I'd say, what's up? He'd wave or whatever. But I noticed that his parents would never speak to us. Never. Now, mind you, they had a Black Lives Matter sign in the yard. That's another talk show, another time. <laughs> they uh, always have
0: a Black Lives Matter sign. Yeah.
1: So I come outside one day, and there's there's where we lived. Next door was where they lived, and next door is another house. And I came outside one day, and they were just laughing and ha 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 with this other family, white people. And I was looking at them, I was like, ah, uh. and I just stared at them until the point to where they knew I was looking at them. And the way they looked at me when they turned around, it was like, oh shit, he caught me. You know what I mean? So, I always, you know, I hate to be conspiratorial about this, but I always look at the way when you see a lot of these, uh, a lot of black kids being adopted by these uh, non black people, it's almost like how um, a lot of Native Americans had to be uh, civilized and Americanized back in the, the trail of tears. You know what I'm saying? How they made them dress a certain kind of way, look a certain kind of way, talk a certain kind of way you know what that's i mean an interesting, sense, like, that's what they're uh, trying to do that with black people
0: that's actually an interesting correlation though not gonna lie because i didn't even i didn't even consider that and let me put it like this is so interesting that we're bringing this up because that's the other thing i want to talk about they have commercials and advertisements for fostering children and they glamorize it in la so it really pissed me off and this is a big campaign here they have these like you know how like you might have those street lamps that uh have like little flags on it to tell you like there's a museum exhibit or whatever, so or whatever there, so they had one with um fostering families, but what they had were celebrities who had been in foster care, so they had like Tiffany Haddish and some other people I didn't know, I can't remember some, some white people all kind of, oh Marilyn Monroe, and that was when I really was like, how do you put Marilyn Monroe up there when we know she was abused in foster care? like that's on the record, but they're t- they're praising it like. It was just so sick. Like, this is some type of weird celebrity thing. You might be able to raise a celebrity. Like, why? Would it was just so it was just such a weird and it is a weird campaign. And I, that's why when you said like you know, your conspiracy theory, not going to lie, it looks a little like a conspiracy.
1: I mean, because all these kids, you know, um, here in Portland. And I don't have to describe to you guys what Portland is like. But here in Portland, when you see these kids and you look at the schools that they go to, they always end up having the same problem. So I used to be a restorative justice uh, coordinator for the Portland Public Schools. And every time we would have to go into a school to work with kids, there was always a black kid dealing with racism. And then we, we, when I would talk to the parent on the phone, I'm like, this man, I don't, something ain't right with this parent. And then so my work, my co-workers would be like, oh, yeah, his, his dad's white. I'm like, oh, OK, so mom must be black. Oh, no, the mom's white. I'm like, oh, shit. I'm like, okay, they adopted. Yep. Yep. And it was, it's a recurring theme. So the the parents would try, and and this is one thing I did notice that a lot of the parents would try to put these kids in some type of cultural, cultural specific programming or something. But if you ain't got, if your house ain't culturally specific, well, the only time they're going to be black is when they get around other black people. When they get in the house, it's going to be something else going on. And now you're wondering why you have these weird dynamics going on and why this kid is either acting out or dealing with consistent racism. And you don't know how to work with them. You don't know how to deal with them. And these are kids that you're supposedly raising.
0: Shit, you, you the person being racist towards them.
3: So what's interesting is, um, I know here, and um, I guess our um, our statutory code, culture and race are supposed to be considered when placing children with a foster or adoptive family. And it's it's, it's a disheartening thing to say. You just don't see many Black people coming forward trying to adopt Black children. And, you know, to say that it's kind of hurtful, but it's the truth. And um, even when children are in their early stages of their their foster care case, trying to get a family member to show up to that child's hearing can it's like pulling teeth um, for no for no reason at all. People are just busy. People are just uninterested. Um, and so I don't know if you all have seen this movie that just came out, um, maybe like last week, Vampires versus the Bronx.
2: I I heard something like that. Is it vampires versus the Bronx?
3: It's on on Netflix, right? Yeah. It's a Netflix movie. It's like the vampire gave a speech about while they were, they were taking over the Bronx because it it was a neighborhood where no one cares if you go missing. No one cares if you're murdered. No one is going to look for you. No, you know, no one cares about you. And that's, When you think about children in foster care um, going to families who may not necessarily like them or want them but may just want them because it is an accessory, because it is trendy, because they will get paid from the state to keep these children, it's easy to adopt a group of children out if if no one else cares about them, if no one else is coming for them. And that's something, sadly, that we see every day. I try to celebrate our successes. Whenever I talk about what I do, I talk about how many kids we send home to their birth parents um, because it's rare or even family members. um, It's very rare. And so to just focus on the negative part that this person is being adopted, this person is placed with strangers. If if I only focus on the negative, it would not be a good job. So what I really do focus on is, is the parents. Hey, you you can't get your children back. Do you have a sister? Where does your sister live? Oh, my sister wouldn't take my... Have you ever asked your sister, will she take your children? Nine times out of 10, the parents don't even share with their family that they've lost their kids to foster care. So these family members who may live So there's a lot of shame behind it. Yeah, or even in um, sometimes even in other countries, these family members don't even know that the parents are going through these issues. And that goes that goes to a deeper issue of the African-American community because families don't even practice a community structure like they used to. And so because of that, families just don't have like familiar resources readily available to care for children like other communities may have. And or um a lot of these middle class white people who are in foster care and who are adopting They do so through their church and churches actually are working as adoptive agencies. And so, yes. Yeah. So when you try to reach out to someone who is a black Christian or someone who's who's deep in the black church, they don't have that type of familiar structure with their church where someone will just step up and say, you know, hey, sister, I will care for your children. I'll take them for six months until you get on your feet. Um, It's just just the, the community aspect of it just isn't there from what I'm seeing.
0: So, so I actually, I I hear you on that. And that is the case. However, the church that I grew up in, which is basically evangelical. And I also have another experience as a nanny where I nanny for foster, a foster family where that was the case. It was a Christian, it was a church that kind of pushed it and did the whole thing. But my church I grew up in was, was black. And there, this is the thing about those churches. It's not even about race as much as it is about indoctrination. And so this which makes this which is really terrifying to me because um, it's, it's like an evangelical movement to get these white families to to foster these um, to foster these black children. I actually nannied for a family that was that was the case. And things that night I knew there was a problem my first day there. One, the family did like whoever was advising them on how to work with these girls who had experienced such severe trauma. I mean, severe trauma before they were even seven. Some of the most horrific things, everything you could think of that was horrific to happen to a child pretty much happened to them. And so I noticed that these parents were basically being instructed to like, oh, I can't let her get away with it because the kids would be defiant, you know, or, or they resist certain things. Now, mind, you, these are kids who are traumatized. All they know is to protect themselves. So then, these uh, foster parents would like be um, would would try to be stern, like no, she can't get her way. And I'm like, but wait a minute, she, it's not about that. Because like, I, had, for example, I got girls to clean their room. The parents could not get them to clean their room for whatever reason. I got them to clean their room. I made it fun for them, we, and they looked really nice, and they were so excited to to show their parents. But it turned out the younger one had wet the bed, and she didn't tell anybody, so the sheets were messed up. But she wanted to finish making up the bed, and Dad's like, no. The foster dad is like, no, he's like adamant about it. Mind you, this little girl is breaking down. She's five and she's breaking down and she's crying because she just really wants to finish making the bed because she has started it. But they're being taught and told that you must be stern and be authoritative and you must stand your ground with these kids. And we're, they're re-traumatizing them in the process. Um, but to another point, you were talking about the positive And I also kind of, we need to take it more, beat even before the positive of reuniting, I'm a, I, I, I had I take issue with is something you said in the beginning, um, not with not with what you said, I agree with what you said, which was the criminal justice system shouldn't really be involved in custody in the first place. And that was something that I've always felt. The issue is before they even get to the criminal justice system. There's usually circumstances that that the, that the, these families are going to. I teach trauma informed, nonviolent parenting. And I get a lot of these. De- so most of not, not most, but like 50 percent of my class comes from DCFS referred cases. Basically, they're trying to clear their cases. All of those parents love their children. All of them. I mean, love their children. There are my classes having breakdowns. They didn't even know that you could talk to your child without beating them because all they've ever known in their life. Instead of getting instead of those parents getting support and empathy and resources, a lot of them, some of them ended up incarcerated, some of them ended up and not mind you, not because a child was in even in physical danger. There was a, a idea that the parent might have done something and the parent was incarcerated. But yeah, so I was just thinking like even before that, how do addressing the circumstances that make it so these families are in these systems in the first place? They shouldn't even be there.
3: I think that the um the pandemic is curing a lot of that, especially in the two counties where I work. Um, and one of the reasons is, is we don't, well, I haven't been to court, like the actual physical building probably since like March the 13th or the 14th. And even though we have Zoom hearings, um, it's clear the way for us to do more out of the court work that we didn't get a chance to do because we were always in court. And so because of that, what everyone is doing is coming up with more creative ways to find placements for the children. And since we're not sitting in front of a judge all day, we have time to sit and call a list of 30 or 40 relatives and say, hey, did you know that your second cousin is in foster care in Georgia? Hey, um, are you um, interested in getting on a Zoom hearing and talking with us and hearing about the case and speaking with the judge? And so the fact that people don't have to travel anymore, they can just log into their computer from where they are. To have the hearings, that's allowing more families to actually reconnect with each other and attend the hearings to understand what's going on and to see how they can be involved. So I think that that's been something positive. Um, I have one particular judge, even before the pandemic, she would always, when we got to court, and she would always say, Why do y'all need to have a hearing? And I know the prosecutor would always say, You know, well, we're supposed to have a hearing on a date because people don't know foster care cases go on for years, you know. And the judge says, well, no, it's up to judicial discretion. We don't have to keep coming back every three months. Find the kids a place to go. Find a family member. Find a a whoever. And I remember um, one day she was saying that, you know, that you all could figure all of this out. Everyone here is smart. Y'all could figure out a solution for placement of children without having to come to the court every couple of weeks to have a hearing. And so now she's still adamant about that, especially with the pandemic. When she logs on, she wants to hear what are the solutions. Have you found a family member? Have the the parents completed their reunification children? Are the children safe? If they aren't safe, let's move them. So I think that those are some positive things that have come. A lot of other judges have adopted that mindset like you don't have to have a hearing every couple of months on where this child is going to go. Go find a place for this child to go. And we have time to do that now. So I'm thankful for that. Um, and I think that that's been a reason for a lot of parents being reunited with their kids. And and, and I know a, there have been a couple of occasions where people have just been reunited because the foster parents were afraid of the pandemic or afraid of being infected with COVID-19. So they sent the children home. And I think that that's interesting and something that's not being talked about. Um, but the fear of COVID-19 has gotten a lot of children placed back with their blood relatives.
0: Which is funny because that lets us know that a lot of them didn't need to be taken away or that should have been an option in the first place, right? It's it's like when they were letting people go out here in LA, because um, they were like the, the county jails are too full and so they need to let people go for nonviolent offenses or if you like, you know, people who have tickets and stuff like that. Exactly. But like you said, it's, there's an economy here. You know, there's somebody's make they're making money, you know, processing people through that system. And people and there are people and entities that are dependent upon that system in order for their economy to continue to flow. And I I also think it's really interesting that you take the approach of working directly with boys in particular. And I think that's really dope too. And I wonder how, you know, was, is there like an emotional connection to like the both, like working with these families and seeing that, and also being able to work with these boys? Is it still like this, like emotional tie of wanting to give back?
3: Um, So, um, I wouldn't say necessarily an emotional tie. Um, Well, okay, I would say that there is an emotional tie for two different reasons. The boys who I work with in the gym, they have very different backgrounds from the kids who I may work with through the court system. Um, And that's something that's also very interesting. I mean, I don't want to say you don't normally see a lot of black middle class children, which a person who's around black middle class people may. But whenever I talk about the gym and whenever I talk about the kids at the gym, For some reason, everyone assumes that they're poor or everyone assumes that they come from like single family homes or that they are my clients from the court. It's almost like whenever I say, hey, you know, I have this gym for black boys. I start getting praise. Oh, my God, you are rescuing the children. They need this. Um, Keep them out of jail. And I'm like, what what are you talking? (laughs) 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 The keep them
0: out of jail one is always funny to me. That one is always funny. I just thought it was dope that you were a black man there for some black boys. That was <laughs> oh, I know you didn't mean me because I don't. Yeah, I just thought that was funny. Like the keep them out of jail.
3: Yeah, I, I get that a lot. So it's it's an emotional connection, but a different emotional um, connection than from the kids that I work with through the court system. Um, but I mean, I, I love gymnastics. I've always loved gymnastics since I was a kid. You, I can't really pinpoint where it came from. It's like one day I went to sleep. You know. The next day I woke up and like gymnastics, gymnastics, gymnastics. Um, Nobody else in my family liked to watch gymnastics. No one knew what it was. And it just came out of nowhere. And It it just never went away. Um, And I I believe that that's something that I share with the boys in the gym. And we have that connection. Yeah.
0: So I know that the other thing about gymnastics and I wanted Tita to go ahead and jump in and ask this. Technically, it was his question. Um, around masculinity and gymnastics and the perception um, that people have of gymnastics. Before
3: you go into that question, I want to make this statement. I've never heard anyone question the masculinity of men or boys in gymnastics. And I've never met anyone who has heard anyone question the masculinity of boys in gymnastics. I have heard or met people who've seen someone post online, oh, a black man didn't think gymnastics was gay. Black men would dominate gymnastics. But no one has ever actually heard anyone say that. And so this conversation makes me upset Because what happens is, is you have people who go based off someone who's heard something, someone who may have said something, but they don't know who. There was this young man online who was talking about, oh, every growing up, everyone thought gymnastics was gay. If they wouldn't, I would have wanted to do gymnastics. I asked him, I said, who said gymnastics was gay? He was like, oh, everybody. I said, no, give me a name. Tell me a person. He was like, well, no one actually ever, no one actually ever said it. But you know, I said, no, I don't know. I said, tell me. And he couldn't say anything. I said, then why are you online? spreading lies so now i'm upset and so so before we get to this this really upset me because you will never find anyone who says that gymnastics is girly gymnastics is unmanly but for some reason that's the first thing
1: people want to go to that's a that's a narrative that started online it did not exist in real
2: life but but that's that's exactly what i was was gonna say because um I'm so I'm so glad like well, you took away like 3 quarters of the question but it was like <laughs> I don't want to
3: talk about this it's not important it's not real it's something that's made up. Uh,
0: but I think he, but I think the question was about, I guess because you answered it, he wanted to talk about, I like, guess that perception online or what people are saying. And you kind of answered it already, so.
2: I just want to clarify what I was going to ask. I wasn't buying into it. What I was saying is the same thing that you're saying. I want to ask you if you experience people who have that myth and where do you think the myth comes from? Because I was thinking, Kenny and I were saying the same thing, that we've never seen this thing ever.
1: Hell no, Anywhere. Look,
2: in every hood, every hood got a, Every hood got a tumbling team.
1: My brother, OG blood gang member, used to do backflips off the house. My brother used to do crazy stuff. We Look, you know, if you, I'm 39 not years just old. That,
2: if, if you saw somebody able to do that, that was the coolest kid that you knew. Hell yeah. Or look, if you dude. watched a movie, if you watched a movie, like we used to watch karate flicks. and Thank the you, scenes, The Thank scenes you. where they were doing all the flips were like We the was most- trying to do that. Yeah
0: It's funny because I remember I was When I was a kid It's like when I watch kids It's the same thing When I watch kids Like when I was growing up In the hood Put like create engines Like out of like Scraps and sh- shit in the alley And they would literally Like build motorbikes And stuff like that And they didn't have An engineering class None of that And Wait, the same it, thing it, With it, a lot of the boys That I would see in my community They would be flipping And flipping off of cars Flipping off of Man um, when we was kids at the park They would be flipping off the tree I, I mean I, I kid you not But yet none of them Had like a formal class They just were out no. there no, we
1: would yeah, thank you, thank you. Cause we 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 didn't have that, that that stuff didn't exist. Like when I was growing up, when it, when Portland was black, we used to all be at Peninsula Park. Or you better Alberta Park, and they had tumbling teams. Vernon School, Whitaker School, all these schools, majority black schools, all had tumbling teams. Now, what happened was once we got to like high school, kids started playing football, basketball, whatever they was doing. But it wasn't because they stopped tumbling because of some narrative. You just stopped. There was it was it no, was no rivalry. Well, I, I'm gonna
0: be real. Like there was no access. What was gonna say well, the other thing though. There's two points though. The other thing, I'm in South Central. There was no tumbling shit. What? no
2: gym we barely had the basketball so what i do want to ask is uh what are the actual reasons why i wanted i wanted to know what are the actual reasons as a way to help dispel the myths because for example i know one thing is it's not easy to find a gym or a coach or things that you can afford. It's not like uh, with basketball when I was growing up. If you could just get a, a hoop and a ball, you were off and running. But you know, with things and like
0: local, and most local parks had a hoop, a, a yeah, hoop at least. Yeah,
2: yeah. And and I would like the narrative to get out about what are the real reasons why you know to kind of dispel. Because I feel like everybody, if they could, if someone could teach them how to do gymnastics, they would love to learn how to do gymnastics. And th- and that's what I what I would like to talk about. Like not the myths, but what are the real things that uh, might keep a black boy who's interested in doing gymnastics
3: from getting a chance to? Yeah, what I do want to say about um, people thinking that um, gymnastics is not masculine or people starting that narrative. In our community, anything that a man does that's different from what the, I guess, the community mainstream man does is gay. If the mainstream Man eats sausage for breakfast, and another man eats porridge. Someone's gonna say porridge is gay. Um, if the mainstream man wears like monochrome clothing, and another man wears peach in the black community, they're gonna say oh peach is gay. So anything different or anything that's not the norm is labeled as gay. And so no matter what you do, no matter what a black man does that's different than what a a larger group or subgroup of black people are doing, if he's d- if he does it, it's gonna be called gay. That doesn't necessarily mean that black people are calling it homosexual, but the label gay is just what black people have given to things that are different. And I mean, I didn't start it and I, I don't know who did, but that's, if it's different, it's gay. That doesn't necessarily they're mean they're calling someone a homosexual, but that's our label for different things. Now to get into the question of what are the reasons? So I've been doing this, um, almost in about three months, it'll be two years. And what I will say is, um, gymnastics is a performance sport and black people, the worldwide, not not just America, we do not get involved in performance sports. And the reason is, is because there is a very low competitive aspect for performance sports. Black people love to be loud. Black people love to cheer. Black people love to talk trash. There is none of that in gymnastics. You have to go to a gym and sit there during a competition for four hours and be quiet. Sitting down and being quiet for four hours is just not in our cultural DNA makeup. So you aren't going to get people who are going to pay $100 for their child to go to a competition and they can't stand up, scream and cheer. Also, um, gymnastics is a subjective sport. You are getting scored by someone else. And this rule book is this thick. So if a parent hasn't read that rule book, they don't know what their child is getting scored on. All they know is their son went out there and did five backflips and he got an 8.2. Then a white boy went out there and did five backflips and he got a 9.7 and he's getting the gold medal. But their child is in 10th place. And the first thing they want to say is, Oh, it's racist. They're rigged. We ain't doing this no more. Um, it's just um a sport like gymnastics. It's it's unless you are someone who's interested in it, who's studying it, and you understand the intricate details on how a gymnast is scored, it will make no sense to you at all. Also, you can go to your child's basketball practice and watch him practice against other kids, and you're going to be entertained. You're going to be screaming from the sidelines on their practice. A gymnastics practice is boring, and I mean, there's no no other way to put it, because for the most, I post the flips so that people can see. We don't flip in practice. They're, they're stretching and shaping and and doing conditioning and doing pull-ups. You know, the parents used to come and watch the practice and they would sit there for hours confused. They were like, y'all standing against the wall again? Like I'm paying this for them to, and I'm like, well, yeah, like this is part of their conditioning. This is part of their shaping. I haven't had one dad who like he he wanted to fight because the boys went into straight jump. He was like, "Oh no, come on, man!" And I had to tell him like, "Hey, man, this is not a trampoline park. This is not a playground. This is an academy with instruction. If you want your child to be on the junior Olympic track, you know this is what we do." But when you see black boys going viral for doing flips on online and everyone's cheering them on, it's not a formal program. The flips really look horrible and they look ugly. I mean, we're just cheering them on because they're black, and I mean it's exciting. But you don't, that's not the same thing that you get in a formal gymnastics program. And when parents, they see all this online, they see the flipping, they love the uniforms. They're like, oh, my son can do that. He'd be flipping all around the house. And little Johnny comes and he has crooked elbows and bent knees and we can't let him flip for two months because he has to get form and he has to get reshaped. And now the parents are confused because my son can do, he can do 10 back backflips easily. But when I bring him here, y'all have him doing forward rows. Like I don't get it. And so because this is a performance program, And because it's not traditionally a part of our community, most Black people don't have patience with gymnastics and they normally leave. And um, one of the issues with competitive, the competitive nature, it used to be where boys had to wait years before they even got into competition. Now USA Gymnastics has changed and they're allowing beginners to compete against each other. But before this change, I mean, your son would be in gymnastics three or four years and you're paying the monthly membership um, before they even saw a competition. And so that's different from when you can put them in Little League Baseball baseball, football, or basketball, and they have practice on Saturday morning and they have a game on Saturday afternoon. And so those are the reasons why I feel Black people don't gravitate. Towards gymnastics. Um, I mean, it's hard, it's difficult, it's boring. You have to love gymnastics to do it.
2: So so the expense, the expense you don't think is is part of it. There's not it's not an expense issue as far as getting the coaching?
3: Well, not for me because my gym is reduced. Um, I believe well, I know I'm the cheapest gym in our area, and most of our boys are on scholarship, and the scholarships were provided by the people on social media for the last three sessions. And so coming to my gym, the expense isn't the issue. I believe that the expense may have been an issue for some parents in the past. But what I've learned, people will pay for what they want to pay for. There are some people who want their child to try a sport. They want them to try this out. Oh, I would have let my child try this if it wasn't that expensive. I hear this a lot. That doesn't necessarily mean that they wanted their child to do gymnastics. I have yeah. people who come and they're like, oh, we just want to try this for a session. We, which is fine. Um, is nothing wrong with that, but I hate the story that's told. Oh man, I never got a chance to try gymnastics, or if it wasn't that expensive, my kid would try gymnastics when these are from families who have no actual interest in their kids doing gymnastics. Um, I, I have mixed emotions on black people who say, who say, oh, um, if gymnastics wasn't so expensive or if there wasn't access. And one of the reasons is just like most county recs centers have a basketball goal or they have a football field, most of those recs have a gym or a bonus room and anybody can write a program for a gymnastics program at the rec center. And once you write that program and it's approved, that rec center has to use its budget to buy the gymnastics equipment, or you can um, do a request for the funds. And I mean, most basketball teams, most baseball teams, football teams, and any other league, little league teams, those coaches are volunteer. They don't get paid. Someone started that program by writing a, a program grant or a request for their local rec center. And the program just keeps going every year with either the same coaches or new coaches and i tell people all the time hey there's no gymnastics program in my area i say call call your county rec center you could actually do a proposal for a gymnastics program and no one's ever serious about it but it's a narrative you know it gets a lot of retweets online people like it and they share it um it's it's good that for some reason men's gymnastics gets a lot of 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 comments and respect from black people online but i feel it's lip service a lot of the people really don't believe the things they say but it gets them interaction especially where gymnastics is concerned
1: the same thing that you said about uh parents wanting to try sports it's the same issue they have in track track and field a lot of kids like to uh try track and field and their parents wanting, but then once they i've and i've heard this for years i ran track played sports in high school and I, i've always seen parents that was like well i thought you guys were just gonna race and it's like no nah, you gotta actually learn how to run like you can't just get on a track and run that's not how you're you know yeah
0: Uh, You know, I actually I had another uh, question because I was just wondering about like how family I mean families, how some of the like would some of the reason also be that. We don't really see male gymnasts praised the way that we see female gymnasts praised. Like female gymnasts are like everywhere. Like you, you watch them, you can turn, you can't change the channel. There's a Simone, but I can name I don't know how many female Dominic gymnasts. Dolls. When I was a kid, I could at the time there was like 1996 Olympics. I I knew all. I was obsessively watching gymnastics because they were always on TV. It was Shannon Miller and Carrie Strug and Amy Chow, and I, I can just spout them off. Dominique Dawes was my my idol. Dominique Moceanu. I even bought her book when I was in middle school right she had, nobody even knows she had a book you know so as a as a girl it was super present and I was flipping off the couch I wanted to go I wanted to do gymnastics my my parents or well, my mother wanted to put me in it my dad didn't agree so I didn't get to do it but um I was I would literally put on my bathing suit because I didn't have a leotard I put on my bathing suit and be trying to, and the arm of the couch was the balance beam and I'd be you know pointing my toe swinging it back and forth you laughing at me but <laughs> i'm telling the truth so my (laughs) what i'm saying that you know those that that was often much like female ice skaters you know like you just see so many more women shown in performance sports so do you think that has something to do with maybe because boys just don't see many gymnasts at least not in the same way that we see basketball players or football players
3: that's kind of where i was about to say so I, i always tell people that um Gymnastics is very similar to the NBA and the WNBA, whereas you have men who watch basketball. They love basketball. They probably couldn't tell you who a WNBA player is. However, the WNBA comes on TV. They they have games. They have merchandise. They have shoes that just doesn't interest that may not interest that person. Um, so gymnastics is the same way like me. I could tell you who all the male gymnasts are. Men's gymnastics comes on TV just like women's gymnastics. Um, they do commercials just like the women. I believe that I'm so... I believe that this really has to do with how gymnastics is marketed. Um, and that comes from the national headquarters, USA Gymnastics. They wanted gymnastics to really be this wholesome, um, this, this upper middle class sport where you just seen like these little pixie like white girls, um, running around doing flips. So they purposely had these deals where only women's gymnastics would be shown, or if it was shown with men's gymnastics, women's gymnastics would be more prevalent. And so because of that, in the, the late 80s and 90s, the media gravitated to women gymnasts more. And because the media gravitated to them more, the fans gravitated to women gymnastics more. So I was the result of a marketing ploy? Oh yeah. So USA Gymnastics was a very small organization in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. So what happened was they hired a marketing guru to be their president and CEO. CEO. So I don't want to say his name because he's very litigious and he kind of listens to like things like this to see if anyone says anything negative about him. But he decided that he wanted gymnastics to be this very wholesome sport. And he had all of these deals, particularly with NBC. And you would just be watching your NBC news and they would run a human interest piece called a fluff about a gymnast. You didn't realize... That there was no reason for them to be doing this story on gymnastics, but because they had this deal and because he had these deals with these networks and these news stations to market gymnastics, gymnastics took on a certain look, it took on a certain feel, and that's what has brought women's gymnastics to the forefront now, um, even more so than men's gymnastics. But even with that, I believe that the men themselves are to blame their lack of popularity this is what i was saying earlier there are so many other things i would love to get into one of the the reasons why men's gymnastics is not as popular as women's gymnastics is because the male gymnasts do not interact with their fans um, just like simone Biles is a superstar men's gymnastics has a superstar just like um, women's gymnastics has like i had all of these dream teams men's gymnastics has it as well they are they are not as public they are not as vocal They, they don't want, they want to be famous, but they don't want to do the things needed to be famous. I think that I can say that better than someone looking at another sport because gymnastics is such a small sport. And I actually know many of them, like I know the professional athletes in my organization, I think that a lot of the male gymnasts are waiting on gymnastics to make them a star versus going out and becoming stars, if that makes sense. And so um, whenever there's an issue, I always say that there, there is something that you can do to make your situation better. And the men's gymnastics team just won't take their responsibility to make their situation better. They're upset that the women are more popular than them and get more money than them. And so they just leave it at that. They may get on social media and they may say something every now and then about it, but it's it stops there. They don't tour, they don't start their own invitationals, they they don't have their own clothing lines like the female gymnasts. And and even though there was this huge marketing floyd, I believe that it it's partially their fault because there are things that they could do or they could take advantage the most popular gymnast in the world, um, in America, a black boy, like he deleted everything on his page about gymnastics and now he's trying to be a rapper or something like that. And I'm oh, like, wow. you know, yeah, gymnastics was what made you famous. Was your bread and butter? Like, what are you doing in the eighties? Uh, people not remember, but they used to be famous.
2: These used to be like Miss Mitch Gaylord and Bart Connor.
3: Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, the the people are popular now, and also, um, like cancel culture is affecting gymnastics. So if if one of the men were to say something like, "Hey, we deserve more money." you'll get a thousand women's gymnastics fans who attack them online. And, and like, and it's it's like terrible, like, oh man, I imagine someone being drugged for their opinion. Now imagine it just for gymnastics. And so a lot of the men's gymnasts, they don't say anything because they're going to get attacked by the women's gymnastics fans and their own fans will not defend them. And so that's the issue with like having like some type of counter um, belief or counter argument. Like you can say it and the people will, will send you a message and back you up and say, "Hey, right, Yes, yeah, speak. Y'all should get paid the same amount as the women. But when they're getting drug on their timeline and getting death threats, none of those same people who are telling them to speak up to, for themselves are actually defending them. And I know there was a male gymnast. Um, so Simone Biles was supposed to do a tour, and there were a lot of male gymnasts on the tour, and she backed out of the tour and started her own. Of course, you know, she has the name so she can pull the money and the sponsors for it. So the men's tour got canceled. So one of the male gymnasts said that that he thought that it was unfair of her to cancel a tour because her canceling the tour took away jobs from the men's gymnasts. Just and that's that's the truth. Oh man, this man was attacked and he got death threats and things like that. And people likened it to the WNBA because the NBA totally funds the WNBA. So if if at any moment the NBA decides not to fund the WNBA, it would not exist. And people think that that's unfair. However, for someone to say if at any moment women's gymnastics decides not to fund men's gymnastics, it's men's gymnastics own problem. And it's not something you should speak about. And so um, those are just some some of the reasons why women's gymnastics is more popular. And those are the reasons why I have a, a serious problem with the popularity of men's gymnastics, because men's gymnastics could be way more popular. But these boys want someone to make them a star. They don't want to do things necessary to become stars. It's almost like sour grapes. Like I'm not as famous as them, so I'm not even going to try. And even clubs themselves. Like I, I talk to local they don't even post pictures or videos of their boys during practice, like on local levels, but they post the girls all day, all week. That's why I make it a point to post my boys online because no other gym posts their boys. And so it starts at that level. So if they're not getting any type of exposure now, 10 years ago, if they do make it to the the national level, there will already be that culture of not posting boys online or giving them any shine and it'll just continue. You know, it's
0: interesting because I was kind of thinking, you, I feel like you'd see a bigger subculture even online of black male gymnasts if they were present online in that way. Because if you think about it, like I get 80s and 90s, there, the technology wasn't the same, right? So you are kind of dependent upon the larger entity to do the marketing. But now, because we have so much in our control around our own image and putting ourselves out there, you would assume that there, that there would be a bigger subculture of, of gymnasts, of male gymnasts. I'm online and in present, you know? I would just
3: assume that, but it doesn't sound like... I mean, they're, they're online. Um, for the most part, they aren't posting about gymnastics, and um, I don't know why they is. Like, if, like If I were to give you some of their pages and you went to their pages, <laughs> you would not know that these are World or Olympic gymnasts. Um, it's just weird. Now, if you go to Simone Biles' page, you know it's Simone Biles, and I've talked to some of them about it. I've encouraged them. I've tweeted them. I've sent them mm-hmm. messages. I'm like, hey, man, the, the people look up to you. These boys need to see you. The, the pub public needs to see you. You need you need to get on the phone and set up your own interviews. You need to call the radio stations when you're in town. You need to call the sports stations on your own. They're not going to do it for you. It's a laziness. They just won't do it for themselves. Um, Prime example. Yeah, I was in um, television and film and I had um, got in touch with some some producers and I said, hey, men's gymnastics is really taking off. There are about six black gymnasts who poised to make the Olympic team. I think that this would make a great documentary. Got everyone's card production numbers. I got in touch with all of the boys. And you think that this would be an opportunity that they would jump at like, oh, man, someone wants to tell my story like zero interest at all. Why do you think that is
2: like on their end? besides laziness like I mean I mean because the one guy wants to be a rapper so it seems like with the rap he kind of found the energy but what well, I'm just curious because you're right it seems strange. I'm just wondering like like what it could be.
3: Well, what I I would say is like most of them have been a part of gymnastics, competitive national level gymnastics, probably since they were eight or nine. And they are so used to being overlooked. And then they're black. And so they were double overlooked and double underpaid. So by the time they're 19 or 20, I believe a lot of them were tired of it. And there was this huge abuse scandal that came out with women's gymnastics a couple of years ago. And many have have hinted that similar things, maybe not, not sexual abuse, but similar abuse happened to the boys in the boys camp and i believe that all of them may be reeling from that and they they probably just want to get away from it and so that could be the reason why they are not very adamant about hey let me let me tell my own story let me get out there and let me let the world know that i mean i'm a competitive gymnast
2: one last question i had right that i was wondering when you have someone who is really talented at like street gymnastics that you see all over social media and stuff, is that something that you'd like to work with or is actually harder? Because I, I know from like different uh, sports and stuff that when you have bad habits from being self-taught, a lot of times it's harder to unlearn those and relearn proper stuff than learn things from scratch. Like A lot of people in this, on the street might think that street gymnast guy is like a godsend who can do all these flips,
3: but I have to imagine it would actually be harder to deal with him than a, a total neophyte. It's 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 terrible. It would depend on what that gymnast wants to do. If that gymnast wants to Probably go to the Olympics someday. It's going to take at least a year or two to unlearn what he's learned on the playground, um, and it's not just dealing with him because you know you can kind of convince children to start from the beginning. It's the parents who think that their child is already ready to go to the Olympics. They're going to be the ones like, "Oh no, my baby's not a beginner. Why is he in beginners classes?" Um, I, I'm kind of dealing with that right now, and it's a success story because I've been working with this kid probably I'm um, about want to say fifteen or sixteen months, and I've seen a very 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 good turnaround. But when I first saw him, I had written him off. I said, oh no, I said, this kid will never be a good gymnast. He can do a flip. And I mean, if he wants to challenge some of the kids on the playground like to a contest, that would be good. But to do competitive gymnastics, I didn't see it. And now after working with him, you know, been able to correct it. And I think that because his parents were willing and he was able to make a complete turnaround. Um, But I had another kid who was kind of the same. The dad thought that he was amazing. Had the boy flipping down the concrete, showing videos of him flipping off the car. <laughs> And I'm I was trying to explain to the dad, you know, you know, this is not gymnastics. You know, these are great flips, but if you bring them here, I want you to understand the program. Like we are a USA Gym. We follow the USA gymnastics guidelines for the Junior Olympic program. And when the dad um when he got in Well, he didn't enroll, but when he got more information about the program, he said it it wasn't for them. It was too slow, which I understood. Um, Now the boy isn't doing gymnastics because I know the dad didn't actually understand what gymnastics was. He just thought he had this this kid could do all these great flips. Um, So, you know, it's twofold. If they want it for an activity, they can go to open gym and flip around. If they want to be competitive, you got to start, kind of start over and correct it. Sometimes you can, sometimes you can't.
0: So um, I, like you were talking a minute, like you, how you use you social media, show your boys and what they're doing because you don't really see enough um, male male presence around gymnastics online. And I, I agree with that because you're literally the first person I've ever seen post <laughs> boys doing gymnastics literally the first person and because of that it made that's one That like I said that's what made me admire you because I watched how you interact with them and I watch how you talk to them and I watch how you have them focus on you know their body and stretching and you know how does it feel when you see them gain a sense of self-esteem and accomplishment Because I feel like you know you being present in their life as a coach and and this is the other thing when I say things like that people assume I mean that the the kids don't have parents but this the only the the thing about that is the one of the kids still need other outside people. Mentors, things like that, regardless if they have both parents. Because there are certain things they just want to be able to share an experience with other, you know, with another mentor. And that's important for their growth. So you are one of those people in these kids' lives and you're watching them grow and gain a sense of accomplishment as you help them, guide them so they can get there. How does that feel for you to be that person?
3: You, you know, it feels great. And I've had to go back and um, readjust several times when we were at the rec center. I felt I was too hard on the kids. I was like, Olympics, 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 go. Gold, gold, gold. And I would be all hyped up and I would get there on Saturday and Monday. And I'm like, you are not performing to the level of an Olympic champion. And then one day I said, man, the kids are six, man. <laughs> like get, <laughs> like, leave them alone. I actually did the opposite. I said, I don't want to focus on um, like getting to the Olympics, getting to the Olympics. I just really want them to have fun and have a, have a good time. And so for the first two months, I really tried to create an enjoyable experience and they love coming to the gym. They weren't learning anything though because everything was focused on their enjoyment and not necessarily on their learning and so I had to revamp it again and I, I met somewhere in the middle and I started talking to them about self-esteem, about taking ownership of what they're learning and holding them to a standard like you came in the gym today what's your goal? Did you reach your goal? What's your goal for the month? What's your goal for the week you know? turning it on them, be like, this isn't a place where I'm just going to just create enjoyment for you. This is a place where you have to come and find some type of self-fulfillment. And a lot of it, um, the parents were in the gym with us in the beginning and parents are distracting. Parents can parents can be one of the biggest detractors to a child's growth because everything a child does is perfect. If a child falls, that's all right, baby. And I'm like, in your contract, it says no cheering from the sidelines, you know? So I suggested that the parents not come to practice. You know, the practice four hours go eat, go grocery shopping and so that allowed for me to what i I believe like create a separate relationship with them as coach and athletes and to allow them to create a relationship with each other as a team and as friends and I believe that once we created that that atmosphere in the gym. Um, They began to grow. They began to learn more. I began to praise them individually. And I also, when their parents were away, I began to learn things about them that I didn't see. I'm like, oh, yeah, this kid doesn't respond to criticism at all this kid doesn't respond to competition. This kid responds to praise. This kid, he likes to be left alone. And, you know, so I began to be able to work with them on that individually while they were in the group. Um, And then I began to see their personalities that I really didn't see when their parents are alone. And I think they're all crazy, man. And and I gave them nicknames, you know, based (laughs) off of their their personalities. Um, But just seeing that growth from from the rec center, which was way over a year ago, um, to when we moved to now, it's been great. I believe a lot of them, have gained confidence um and i always tell them when they want to say something speak up i say man you're a voice in this world oh and another thing that i've noticed um And I've been trying to put this into words. Boys aren't boys in the sense of how when we were boys, you know, you were boys, you know, being called a boy was something like prideful. Like if you're crying, hey, man, you a boy, stop that crying. Or if you're afraid to do something, hey, you a boy, you shouldn't be afraid to do that. And so just working with a group of boys in today's time, you are not going to have that rugged eight-year-old, that rugged nine-year-old boy that you had in the eighties or you had in the nineties. Like these kids remind me of Disney characters um, or Nickelodeon characters. They are very emotional. And one thing that I, they cry about any and everything. And when I was an eight-year-old to cry, like you would never see an eight-year-old boy cry. And just working with kids now, you know, if you, if, if, if they're frustrated, if something's wrong, if they don't like the shoes they're wearing, and it I, it, it just used to scare me because I'd never seen anything like this. And I just remember one day um, a kid was trying to talk to me. And he was like, well, I don't, and, I, don't. and I, I just said just very firmly, I said, stop crying. And he stopped. I said, there's no reason for you to cry. If you want to tell me something, tell me. So he stopped crying and, and he talked to me. And so now when they do that, you know, I, I just say stop crying there's no reason for you to cry. If you if you want to share something with me, tell me. And I believe that, that that is a way to build confidence. That's a way to build communication. That is a way for them to learn themselves. And also, um, I don't think that anyone is teaching young children how to be in control of their emotions these days. Like I'm not a therapist or a counselor or anything, but I believe that since the boys have been working with me, they are learning to control their emotions. Um, and counter to what we may read online, where people are saying you shouldn't have this emotional control and you should be able to cry or scream whenever you want to. We do know that we need to have some type of control over ourselves in practice order. And I just believe I've been able to help a lot of them with that in the program.
0: You, you actually said a lot. And even, and I really want to hit on this last point though, because I think that's interesting. I agree with you. I think my approach is a little bit different. So for example, I, I hate whining. It's like when so I, I nanny for years, I nanny for about 10 years. So a lot of my background is working with families and children the whining thing, it's it, its like nails on a chalkboard. So what I've learned to do is just tell them, you know, I, especially when they come to you crying and whining about something, I say, you know, I really want to help you. So that way they know I'm not there to criticize them. I really want to help you. I can't hear you and I can't understand you. And when you're ready to tell me I'm here. But I can't hear you now. And usually they'll calm down so they can tell you. And other things going to say what I think you really do, I, th- I, and I think it's not so much that you are teaching them to control their emotions as much as you've given them so much confidence that they can cope with frustration now. They can cope when they fail. They can cope when, so as a, so, and I, because the, 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 the crying thing is a natural response, but now they have coping mechanisms where they can say, oh, you know what? I didn't mess up back then, back there, but coach gave me a new set of things to try. I'm going to try this. I don't have to cry. I don't have to get frustrated. Anymore. I don't have to, you know, have this big emotional breakdown because I you know something didn't go well or another student did something. But the other thing I wanted to point out that you did that I thought was really great. You said you kept trying. So many people give up when they don't get it right working with children. Or they'll say it's the kids' fault or they blame the parents. They will not take their own accountability in how they work with children. And I've had a, a very similar experience with that. Um when I first started working with uh, kids who have incarcerated parents and kids who were in kinship care and foster care, nobody told me that these were also kids who had like like ADHD or or diagnosed with ADHD and you know had a lot of other trauma, which we really know now is a trauma response, but that's a whole other conversation. Um, <laughs> you know, so how these kids with high needs needs and I first I was complaining, these kids this and these kids that. And my dad, I talked was complaining to my dad. And my dad said, ain't nothing wrong with them kids. Something wrong with you. <laughs> and I said, what? <laughs> He said, you don't know what you're doing. Ain't nothing wrong with them kids. And so I went and I learned how to work with kids with, you know, and how to calm them down, de-escalate. But I had to keep trying. I was, the first time I did it, I was very much like you, came in hard. But one thing about Watts kids, they will let you know they don't care nothing about your hardness. Don't give a fuck, (laughs) right? The Watts kids was like, you know, fuck you, I'm walking out. I mean, I couldn't do nothing. Um, And then it went to me being too soft. Then it was like a, it was like a, a, like a madhouse. Like the principal came in, was ready to cancel the program because the kids were out of control. So I had to learn the techniques and ways to work with kids that was some it wasn't even that it was in the middle it was just a whole nother direction and you like you another thing you pointed out you started to listen to what their needs were so okay these kids have different needs that drive different behaviors and as you began to learn those things you said okay this, this kid responds to competition this kid does not those things are really important when you're working with children I just think it's so dope that you took the time to learn within yourself instead of just blaming everyone else oh it's the government <laughs> it's this it's that and you actually took accountability and made the change that you needed to make um, in order for you to help the boys so they can help themselves. And I thought that was such a powerful thing that you did. And I think you creating this program is, you know, one of the dopest things It makes me smile every time I I go down my Instagram timeline and I see you and I see your boys and I see like, again, how you talk to them, how you encourage them. All of that is so beautiful. And I want us to see more Black men in that, you know, being spread. I want to see that go viral more often, right? Because so much is, you know, to me, especially right now in this political climate, is very anti-black male. Right. And I think it's important. And, you know, they're telling us black men aren't nurturing. Yet I'm watching you with your boys supporting them. Nurturing doesn't have to be hugs and kisses, by the way. Everybody thinks that. No. Um, nurturing does not have to be hugs and kisses. Nurturing is, you know, supporting them and helping them, you know, cope with the situation and begin to build. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks, I thanks appreciate us. you. And this is one of those interviews where I learned a lot. Um, Because, re- again, there isn't much per- conversation or perspective. And you're the first time I've ever seen it. So do continue the great work yeah, that you're I- doing. Yeah,
2: I'm glad we got to dispel a lot of those myths, too. Because those myths online were bugging me, too. Oh,
3: yeah, man. It's it's terrible. It's But, you know, I, I just I stopped interacting with those conversations. I just let the people get their retweets and likes.
0: And one of the things you mentioned is that you have uh, like people donate so people can, you know, so your program can be affordable for anyone. And um, I think that's really dope. I donate every time I get a chance. I always donate. I don't know if you notice.
3: (laughs) Any amount. um, If anyone's interested in sponsoring a boy, um, they can send any amount to our cash app, which is cash sign JJ Gym Academy. And Jim is G-Y-M. Um, or they can go to our website, wwwjjgymacademycom forward slash sponsors. And they can read about the sponsorships and the type of sponsorships that... Um, the gyms offer and where the funds go to. Um, so any amount helps and it, it keeps us flipping toward our goal. Our first competition is in exactly a month, November 15th, um, and we'll be on the mat.
0: So send them dollars in. I'm sure they probably going to need some snacks and some water.
3: We are the only known all black men's gymnastics team in Georgia. So we're very excited.
0: Oh, congratulations. I guess being first is 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 great because it means that you broke through some shit. <laughs>
3: I wanted to tell you all about the people who were trying to stop me, but the, you know, like really trying to stop me, not, not any conspiratorial, conspiratorial stuff, but then the static happened, you know, they was trying to silence me, but yeah, but we're breaking through, just know we're breaking through. Awesome. Awesome. Appreciate you. Where can people find you? Um, They can find me on Twitter um, at James Jones Esquire. Um, I tweet from the gym on two accounts. One is um, JJ Gym Academy and the other is Skywalker's Boys Gymnastics. They can find me on Facebook at James Jones Esquire as well.
0: Thank you so much again. I appreciate you. Appreciate all this, all those listeners who joined us. And hopefully you learned as much as I did. And I'm very excited about that. So I'm going to go out to the world with a whole new perspective. Thank you so much. And
3: see you next time. All right, Vita. All right, T. Y'all have a good night. You too. Take care.